Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Do you think bananas are healthy? Think again. I'm Dr. Stephen Gundry, best-selling author of the Plant Paradox series, and on the Dr. Gundry Podcast, you're going to learn the foods to eat and the ones to avoid, to lose weight, boost your energy, and feel your most vibrant, active self this year. You'll also learn simple tips from the world's top experts on health and nutrition. Plus, you'll discover the truth about calories, how running could actually be hurting your health, and why fat won't make you fat. Subscribe now to the Dr. Gundry Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. Well, everyone's striving to optimize their health and wellness, but it's confusing out there. They lack three important things, which is a clear picture and a clear measure and a clear idea of what to do. That is where Inside Tracker comes in. No matter what your journey, Inside Tracker is striving to expand our health span and our wellness. It's an ultra personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness tracker to help you optimize your health and wellness. They transform your body's data into knowledge. It was founded in 2009 by a group of scientists, aging genetics biometric experts from MIT, Tufts, Harvard. Inside Tracker's mission is to improve health. That's it. Science-based and its optimization, they use DNA, blood, fitness tracking in real time to complete a picture of your health and wellness. And their cutting-edge algorithmic engine will analyze, again, blood, DNA, and lifestyle habits and guide you with a goal-oriented action plan of nutrition, fitness, lifestyle recommendations, and why you need to do those things. Objective, evidence-based and you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Drew. Again, they track your progress every step of the way, every day. Reach your performance goals, perhaps live a longer and healthier life, hopefully, and get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com slash Drew. everyone welcome to the dr Who podcast we do appreciate y'all being here and of course supporting those that support us so we can keep this thing going and keep the wind in the sails of the corolla pirate ship we are careful with those we select to support us and so thank you for supporting them we appreciate it uh one of our favorite guests three-timer gleb Saberski coming back newest book <laughs> is returning to the office and leading hybrid and remote teams a manual on benchmarking to best practices for competitive advantage if you remember last time we talked to him the book was resilience Adapt and plan for the new abnormal of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. And, of course, uh, I think the first time we saw you was Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, Avoid Terrible Advice, Cognitive Biases, and Poor Decisions. And the – is it the Pro-Truth – wait, Truth Seekers Handbook. There it is. Science-Based Guide. What's the website, Club? The uh, Truth website. Because I have signed up for it and I made the pledge. Right. Uh, ProTruthPledge.org. P-R-O-T-R-U-T-H-P-L-E-D-G-E dot org. Exactly. You can follow Gleb on Twitter, Gleb, G-L-E-B underscore Sibirsky, T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Website is DisasterAvoidanceExpertsPlural.com. And Instagram, doctor at Dr. Dr. Gleb, G-L-E-B, underscore Saversky. Uh, and PhD, Behavioral Science, University of North Carolina, uh, MA at Harvard, BA at NYU, uh, cognitive 
psychology would be sort of the zone we're going to get into. But before <laughs> we go talk about the new book, you were asking me a, a personal question. I said, let's do this on the, on, the, on the record. So go ahead, ask me. Sure, happy to. So I know you had COVID and yep. you were recovering. You were sharing with me earlier about the brain fog you were experiencing. So I'm kind of curious well, how your health is right now. So my, my health is actually – I always hate to <laughs> – characterize anything as perfect, but it's, it couldn't be better right now. It's, it's excellent. Wonderful. Uh, but there's an interesting story to have gotten here, uh, which is I imagine I was sick for about three months. Mm. Uh, I was really sick for about two or three weeks. Uh, and then I had this incredible fatigue that went mm. on for weeks. And I got out of that with a medicine called fluvoxamine, which is a it's an antidepressant. It's an SSRI that was invented for uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, but it has a very powerful activation of something called the sigma one anti-inflammatory system in the central nervous system. Mm. There's a, a, a an entire uh, New England Journal uh, article dedicated just to the sigma one system, and it turns out that fluvoxetine and fluvoxamine, so Luvox and Prozac. Both bind very powerfully on that sigma-1 system. Uh, the others do not, so don't think that your Zoloft's going to help you or anything. They really don't. Uh, it's interesting to speculate the extent to which that system, i.e. the inflammatory system or anti-inflammatory system, might figure into some depressions. It's kind of an interesting yeah. sort of thought experiment. But uh, it's shown to have very good uh, activation or very good clinical uh, utility in COVID. There was a JAMA yeah. article with a high dose of fluvoxamine that showed uh, a 100% in a case of about, I think it was like 28 patients or something, keeping people out of the hospital in a high-risk population. Ooh. And so the guy that funded that is a guy named Steve Kirsch, and I got to know him, and I, I interview him on some of my streaming shows, and he started pounding on me. He's like, your brain is a – you don't want to screw with your brain. You've got to take this fluvoxamine out. And I talked to my doctor about it. I tried not to make the decision on my own. And do you know this story, Gary? Have I told it? Yeah. And um, and uh, he had heard of it and he'd read the data and he said, oh, let's try it. And I said, look, if nothing else, we'll learn something for other patients and I don't mind being an you know, of one. And the moment I took my first dose, the ringing in my ear subsided, which has been a very wow. prominent post-COVID symptom for me. Now it came back, but I could tell it was doing something and my fatigue resolved over about a week. Uh, and I stayed on it about three weeks, and I had some waxing and waning. Again, how much, how long, that is just not there yet. But uh, it it clearly helped me, and now they're using it. Uh, there's this thing called covidlonghaulers.com, which is, yeah. a, re is a research pro uh, cohort by a guy named Bruce Patterson, who is a famous HIV researcher. And they've been using a bit of fluvoxamine with eh, mixed results, but they're using it. Um, and it's also one of the medicines that can be used in early COVID now. It's sort of a no harm, no foul kind of a thing. Um, but I still had – this is the part I wanted to tell you, and I'm sorry to be long-winded about this. We've got a lot to get hey, into today, okay. but we got we got time. Uh, is that I was still left with this uncanny – this is the cognitive part – I yeah. could, I, something was wrong. Uh, my memory was intact. Mm. My working memory was maybe a little worse than usual. And I've noticed decline with aging of my working memory. I used to be able to do three or four things at once and now I can do like one. <laughs> and that might have been a little worse. But my new learning was intact. My explicit – my formal memory was intact. Um, 
problem solving. Everything seemed intact, but I still had this sense something was right. And it had a kind of a motor component to it. So I thought, mm. huh, I should take up maybe some dancing or something. Or maybe I should mm. go back to the piano and maybe piano will help. But we were going to Greece. And I thought, I have a feeling a language might help work my brain out mm. a little bit. So I started learning Greek and the fog lifted in about two weeks doing wow. that, working hard at it. I worked hard at okay. it. It was not a half measure. And it lifted and stayed lifted. And but this is the unkind. This is the reason I'm telling the story and telling it in such a long form. Then I had this uncanny experience, where the language acquisition came much more easily than any other time in my life. Do you want to say something, Gary? No, I just I'm I'm paying close attention because it's apparent to me that you've now hired a new tutor for a new language for French. So like, yeah, for so French. it's it's kind of part of your personality that like I, I find it funny that you found something that worked and you're like, "Well, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, I, if I have to learn seven languages, I'm going with this." Yeah. Well, but but there's a piece of this for this is for Gleb. I can't tell if it's really the acquisition that is so much easier or is it the gratification? I feel I'm having a weird gratification from it that I don't remember ever having before. Now, is it just coincidence? I feel like a little child, you know, going cup, cup, you know, that kind of mm. glee that comes with children learning language. Yeah. I'm experiencing that with the language acquisition, which I, again, I studied French for years and years and years, and I never had that experience. Now, is that mm-hmm. something new? Is that just something because I'm feeling better? I, I, who the hell knows? But here's the other uncanny part. When I got to Greece and started talking, literally every person would stop me right away and go, oh, my God, your accent. And here's the um, uncanny part. I didn't think about accent. I didn't pay any attention to accent. And so the accent acquisition was somehow automatic. And at my age, that's kind of weird, right? Usually accent's the last thing to come. And they were all like, hey, where'd you get that other oh, accent? So, God, where'd you speak? And I'm like, whoa. So that caught my attention in the setting of this weird phenomenon of post-COVID. And so now I've gone back to French. And because I'm not going from zero, I'm going from essentially 90 miles an hour. I want to go to 100 miles an hour. And that's not as clear. It's not as clear. I, it's still the gratification is there. But it seems like I'm working harder now than I did from zero to, to something. So uh, interesting, right? Weird cognitive no, stuff this here. this is interesting. Yeah. It reminds me of some of the research on microdosing with LSD that's being done right now. Tell me. Where what some of the research on this topic shows, uh, also the similarity to ketamine, is that there's uh, so there, the, there's cognitive processing, kind of how you process things, that a microdose of LSD results in a reset of your Bayesian expectations, of your probabilistic expectations. So you basically have more of a newbie mind. Yeah, yeah. Beginner's mind. And you have less expectations about reality, about the world. And thus you're more open to fresh experiences. And, and there's a so, little there's a reward phenomenon with it. It's a little yeah. bit of a reward well, activation that you just new things yeah. well, learning new things is always rewarding for yeah. human beings who are curious yeah and if you clear your mind of some of the previous expectations and clog and so on then you have more openness to experience really so when you have so when you have that that's what the research on lsd is showing that's one of the reasons it's helpful for people who have traumatic who have a ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder they let go of some of that trauma with microdosing of lsd and they become more open to experience. Gary, 
I was just going to say it strikes me that you're having a unique experience that most people don't, whereas as you are learning the new language, it is also unlocking you know knowledge and, and utility that you already had in your everyday life just in modes of your brain being defogged. Hopefully. Oh, you know, right. yeah, yeah, hopefully. Well, that's the, that's the weird part of this, right? What, what is that exactly? Are there other hallucinogenics showing similar, like ibogaine or ayahuasca or anything? No, I just know about LSD. I've been following that Interesting. pretty closely. It, uh, might, it might apply to others, but... LSD research is kind of becoming more and more prominent right now. Yeah. And so that's definitely showing that sort of openness to experience, dealing with trauma, resetting your brain to have less expectations and kind of basically the cognitive processing. How do we process things? We are very much as human beings driven in our processing by expectations. So what we see is not necessarily what there is. What we see is very often what we expect to see. And the information that gets into our brain is very much informed by our biases, by our heuristics. So if you decrease some of those biases and heuristics, which is what microdosing with LSD does and some of these other things, then you are more open to experiences and you're more curious and you take in more information. And of course, there's some negatives to that, but that's kind of the what some of the research is showing. And I, I've actually seen people, uh, I forget the woman's name, that made the case that even emotions are sort of future expectation generating mm-hmm. uh, sort of phenomena. Ex- explain that to people, <laughs> yeah, how that of works. Because that's a yeah, hard yeah. one to get your head around. So, so emotions are about expectations. When yeah. you don't, you know, if somebody says something mean to you it's about your expectations of what they would be otherwise saying or what your expectations of what is the appropriate thing to say that makes it that makes you then angry or upset or frustrated it's there's nothing inherent about the statement itself that is called that is mean and anger causing or something like that it's just your expectations of what is appropriate what is normal your beliefs if you're coming from a different culture if you're a different person if you didn't care at all for that the person who said them, you know, the thing that you find mean, you would not be nearly as upset. So your expectations are in based, are f- informed your emotions. Your emotions are definitely a response to your expectations, your perceptions, your beliefs, underlying beliefs about what the world should be like. I think the woman's name was Feldman or Feldman that uh, wrote a book about this thing. Look that up here, I see. Um, it, it, you were talking about you know contrasting expectation with reality, right, or with this, yep. or experience. And it, 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 as soon as you said that, I immediately what I started thinking about was what's her name, Lisa Feldman. Lisa Barrett. Feldman, yeah, Barrett. Yeah, what's the, what's the book? Uh, the paper that I pulled up here that I'm looking at: emotion generation and emotion regulation. Yeah. One or two depends on your point of view. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Um, it's the theory of relativity as it pertains to emotions. Fantastic. Uh, it, but it, I immediately started thinking about retina, retina function. And probably that's because back when I first started uh, studying neuroscience, that was the, the structure that had been well worked out and we were all mm-hmm. schooled on it very carefully. Um, but one of the things that sort of jumps out if you study the retina, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contrast detecting mechanism it's not even so – the eye is not really expecting anything, but but if something moves or moves in a certain direction or you know whether it's up and down or side to side, it's because there are columns that are looking for that to contrast one versus the other. And I'm wondering if this is 
more of a contrast generating cognition than future generating because it, it, it seems weird to me to think about the body expecting something unless it's anxiety uh, it, it, you know what i mean it's no, like, yeah. uh, it, it really is so it's right. been uh, shown by on um, research on visual illusions okay so when you have research on visual illusions and auditory illusions you know various things that cause you to yeah. you know things blinking you feel that they're moving you yeah. see them moving but they're not actually moving yeah as a result of taking microdosing of LSD or other mind-altering substances, they cause you to see things in an actually clearer way. You are less likely to be fooled by visual illusions if your expectations are decreased. Because visual illusions are based on your mind's expectations and it forcing the lower down senses to perceive something that's not actually there. So that's kind of what the, some of the research on what is called predictive coding in neuroscience. So that's the, that's the predictive coding approach. It talks about how what we see, what we experience, and what we think. So talk about cognitive biases, right? Yeah. Cognitive biases is predictive coding in the mind. So when, while visual illusions is predictive coding in the senses, we have visual illusions because we expect to see something and we force ourselves to see it even if it's not there. We have cognitive biases because we have certain perceptions of what information is correct, and we perceive the information even if it's not correct. Now, you use the word clearer in terms of seeing reality more clearly or whatever it might be as, as it pertains to reducing the predictive bias, predictive coding. Um, I want to go back to my own experience a little bit. And what I kept saying, and I probably said it to you back last time we met, the experience I was having post-COVID felt like what I would have imagined a severe head injury would feel like, the way people mm. describe it, the way we see it clinically, the way I've heard you know, tell, take, taking care of patients with that. It felt like a global injury. <laughs> like I, mm. uh, And so – and it's healed, whatever it is, at least for the time being. Uh, but my question is I, I wouldn't – I mean I had this nice side benefit and maybe LSD creates the same side benefit, but – I, I worry about using words that put um, value context on what we're seeing as a result of changes from things like microdosing. Not that I'm against microdosing. Mm-hmm. I just – the literature – I just worried about it. Back in the 60s, they used to make explicit value judgments. They'd go, well, you know, the person now has a, f- a fewer expectations and they're more open to the world. Their personality has massively changed, but but they're happier. So anyway, and it's like whoa, 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 whoa. You that's a to change who the person is. And I know microdosing doesn't do that, but as soon as somebody changes who they are, we have no business making a value judgment. We can just observe the facts, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing as taking psychiatric medication. You know, it can have a positive impact. It can have a negative impact depending on the person's circumstances. So microdosing is quite helpful for those with PTSD, for example. Yeah. So if you have PTSD and you're inhibited by the trauma that's in your life, that's kind of what PTSD is about, yeah. then microdosing, the re- some of the research has shown, again, it's not approved for clinical use yet, uh, but the research has shown that it definitely helps people quickly get over the trauma very quickly. Yeah. Just like ketamine is approved because it has been shown to help people with depression quite quickly and effectively. So it's not it's a tool. You know, tool is a neutral thing. Right. Purposes and bad purposes. That's right. And we, you know, clinically we think of it as a risk reward analysis. You know, is the risk yeah. worth it? And it's in stuck PTSD 
pretty clearly worth it. Same thing with the MDMA, that all that MDMA. I don't know if you saw that MDMA study that came out. Uh, I interviewed that showed significant benefit for uh, recalcitrant PTSD. But there was a corollary in that one, which was they were very clear to point out that in the hands of a skilled therapist, this helped break through the PTSD stuckness. Yeah. It wasn't just the drug. It was the drug in a clinical setting. Yes. Uh, and, and that's the same thing with, uh, w- with the microdosing mm-hmm. with the LSD. So mm-hmm. it's combined with therapy, of course. Interesting. So when you, you don't want to do it in a situation for someone, for example, who already is too open to experience, like someone who has schizophrenia. Mm. I mean, schizophrenia is a disease of ex- two of predictive coding where you have too few expectations and where you have you see too many things that aren't real basically yeah, yeah. so that's a dangerous situation you don't want to create more openness to experience there so it, it really depends on the context and the situation it's only right in certain research based contexts so talk to us about the new book sure yeah. so talking about the new book returning to the office and how do we do that how do we form the workplace of the future? That's kind of what I've been seeing many, many companies get wrong, many leaders get wrong. I mean, look at what happened recently with Uber just a couple of weeks ago saying that we screwed up our return to the office when they were trying to force all their workers back to the office and saying, okay, we'll go to a hybrid schedule. Amazon did that about a month ago. So a little bit before Uber saying, okay, we won't force all our workers back to the office. Google did that on May 5th, saying that our attempts to force all the workers back to the office is a big problem, and we're going to turn back the clock. And so we're seeing that many, many leaders have these mental blind spots, these cognitive biases that cause them to be making bad decisions. So here looking at the brain, why do we have these problems? Why are these leaders making bad decisions around returning to the office? Well, what we see is a number of cognitive biases. One of the most prominent is called the status quo bias, where leaders really want the past. The status quo bias causes us to be stuck to the past, the status quo, either stuck to what is there or want to get back there. Leaders have been successful for 30 years in their career through in-person office activities. They have oversight. They have people surrounding them. You know, when I consult on this topic, uh, I have leaders who tell me that, you know, it's very comfortable for me to be around others. I like it. It's pleasant. And I can't imagine why somebody would not want to come back to the office. Mm -hmm. And so they have this attitude about wanting to be back in the office. It's very personally comfortable for them. And so they make bad decisions for their companies because of the status quo bias and other related biases that I want to talk about. But I want to check if you have questions on the status quo bias. Well, the status quo bias is an interesting one. I'm, I'm sure I suffer from it myself. Uh, mm-hmm. But but the wanting to be back and wanting to be in a social context, I don't know that that's a bad impulse, though. That's not a bad decision, right? It, it's it, a bad decision if it leads to bad outcomes for your company. So if it leads to what happened with Uber, what happened with Amazon, what happened with Google, where lots and lots of workers left these companies because they wanted either mostly hybrid work or full-time remote work, you know, especially like these are tech companies. But when you look at statistics of what people want, about something like about a third of all office workers, people who can work remotely, want full-time remote work. Something like 50% or so want hybrid work, maybe one to two days a week. And only 15 to 20% want full-time in-the-office work. Whereas so many leaders with Uber, you know, Amazon, 
want their people back in the office full time because they feel comfortable, they feel successful, they feel they can have oversight. That's a very big problem right now where so many people are looking for new jobs and so many companies are hiring because of the economic recovery. So the leaders are making really bad decisions. It is a bad decision if the, you know, well, it's a bad decision. It's a bad decision if there's a tight labor market, right? Right. It, It might be a way of cutting off the wheat from the shaft, the sh- sh- the whatever you call it, wheat from the shaft? Sha- what's the word yeah, I'm looking yeah, for? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, uh, here's, how, here's what I'm curious about, which is why is the leader's cognitive bias the wrong bias as compared to how things were before COVID different than the cognitive bias of the people that have been home for a year and a half who don't want to change? Both are cognitive bi- or, or status quo biases, right? Yes, you have status quo bias on both sides. Yeah. So, so which one is? How do you measure one against the other? How do you decide which one's right? Well, the leader is the adult in the room, right? So, the leader is the one who Maybe. has decision-making authority. Yeah. The leader is the one who can decide what's going on with Uber, what's going on with Amazon, what's going on with Google. We see from their reversals. I mean, lots of employees left. They have really bad hits to their morale. People feel not listened to, not heard. And then they reverse these plans, which they had for many months, to come back to the office. You know how many millions it cost them? Clearly, they fell into a number of so other cognitive biases, which they fell into is confirmation bias, mm. where they were looking for information that confirmed their beliefs and ignoring information that did not confirm their beliefs. Obviously, they had a lot of information on internal surveys and external surveys. There were, like I said, the survey, the data that I cited was done by venues like the Harvard Business School, Society for Human Resource Management, Microsoft, Slack, large companies, a lot of publications. And of course, they had internal surveys on all of these topics. And they had the data to make good decisions, but they made very bad decisions. Mm. The decision maker in the context of the company really made bad decisions, as we can see by the fact that they had to reverse them. So this is a big, big problem for leaders who fall into these cognitive biases. They are the ones who have the power to do decide what the company does, and they are making clearly bad decisions if they then have to reverse them. Is there like a top three or top five cognitive biases that you recommend to leaders to watch out for? Yeah, so the status quo bias, the confirmation bias, a related one is called the false consensus effect. The false consensus effect, it's where you believe that others at your tribe, so the the, tribalism is one of the fundamental causes of cognitive biases. They come from our Savannah background Mm. when we lived in small tribes of 50 to 150 people. And so tribalism is really important for us, drives many behaviors right now which are problematic. One of them is the belief that the people in your tribe share a lot of the same values that you have and beliefs. And clearly, these leaders made bad mistakes when they felt that their subordinates shared their values. They probably said that, well, you know, they didn't really mean it when they said that they would leave the company if uh, if we had went back to the office. They'll come back. They they want to be in the tribe. Well, no, that's not what the, that's not what actually happened. And you should have known that, and you screwed up, and you had the information that you needed to make about their decisions. That's the false consensus effect. Interesting. That's Well, Headspace is the daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided medications, easy to use app. 
the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace really can help you feel better. Whether it is sleep, Headspace can wind you down with their sessions and for parents, even morning meditation you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, boost focus, increase sense of well-being. And of course, I think we all know that mindfulness and meditation have been shown objectively, evidence-based, to be very helpful for many people. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies and over 600,000 five-star reviews and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy to build a life-changing meditation practice. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash drew. That is headspace.com slash drew for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. Best deal offered right now. This is it. Head to headspace.com slash drew today. Well, of course, AMCN covers the cost of emergency medical flight, even when comprehensive coverage does not. You, of course, can get hit with a substantial deductible and copay. Unless you have AMCN membership, protect your family, your finances with an Air Medicare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency strikes, the expense of air medical transportation completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. Just pennies a day. We all know the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. Huh, it's $85 a year and then $50 e-gift card? Pretty good deal. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew. Use offer code Drew. If you're experiencing mental health symptomatology, struggling with relationships, BetterHelp can offer online professional counselors who can listen and help. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. Not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in all areas, but service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, you know, that kind of thing. Traditional offices are just uncomfortable. And I have referred family, friends, patients, and am very impressed with the professional services. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Our podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and our listeners get 10% off their first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com. Visit betterhelp.com slash Drew and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp professional. But before you go on to any other ones, let me, let me drill in on that a little bit, which sure. is, is it is it safe to say that tribalism is up for some reason these days and that's some of the cause of increased cognitive biases? Oh, no question. Tribalism, the polarization of American society is definitely growing. And that has to do a lot with the changing media landscape and the rise of social media, where we don't consume the same information anymore. We consume information that's niched to us from our social networks and so on. And we live in much more filter bubbles, whether it's in the workplace or in the home and so people are much more tribalized, much more polarized, and that contributes 
to tribalism-based cognitive biases. Um, well, false consensus effect is one of those. The halo effect and the horns effect, I think we talked about that earlier. Let's do that the again. The halo effect causes us to like people who are in our tribe, who have characteristics that place them on our tribe. The horns effect causes us to dislike people who have characteristics that are different from us. That's been definitely more of a problem recently. So, yeah, we're definitely seeing this in everything from conversations about critical race theory to polarization in Congress to everything, you know, you, know, you name it. <laughs> it, it. It's interesting to me. I, I was thinking a little bit about this uh, lately. I guess it was in pertains to critical race theory or something. And my wife always hammered into my head that language was one of the major ways of identifying other you know, that, that wars were fought really along lines of language fractures. You know, one language is spoken on one side of the river, another language on the other, and people conflict. Uh, and critical race theory is, is focused on race as the source of that otherness. But it feels like these days the sort of shared beliefs are the source of halo and horns effect. Is that accurate? Or shared yeah, view of the world, or something. Shared, it's not. It's no longer yeah, about well, language. It's no longer about yeah. skin color. It's about now. Is it identity or just it, it ideas that they ideology? Identity politics. Yeah, politics. identity politics. Yeah. Ideology. Yeah. Identity is tied to ideology much more now. Yeah. Because you can find online in this new media landscape very small niche groups yeah. with which you can identify, and then you can have that tribal belonging to that niche group. And that niche group, of course, is going to be a part of a larger tribe. You know, you have the blue tribe and the red tribe, classically yeah. speaking. Yeah. But within each of these is going to be a huge number of sub-tribes. I mean, QAnon is going to be a very, very different tribe than the libertarian tribe, even though they all have affiliations, you know, with the red tribe. And the blue tribe has its own trolls. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. You, have the, you have these issues, absolutely. And you know, these niches cause people to be very much tied to their identity when they can find these small niche groups across the country. Whereas previously, who was your source of identity? Who was your source of community? Because our identity reflects our community. Our identity is tied to other people. We're not defined by ourselves, to be clear. We're defined by others. The way that others perceive us is how we perceive ourselves. So we, our identity is formed in reflection to others. So previously, our identity was formed in the reflection of our friends and neighbors who are generally the people around us. Now it's with people who are very much distant um, all across the United States, even across the globe, we can find in the same Facebook group or in Reddit or whatever, on Twitter. So you can find those niche communities, niche identities. And that's definitely caused more polarization, more tribalization, and more focus on identity these identity categories, small niche identity categories, rather than a broad shared identity of being American, watching the same sort of news channels, having the same sort of information, and being part of your neighborhood and community. Yeah, I want to put a, a reinforce and put even a finer point on that the statement you made about you know identity is in relation to others. I think people consider statements like that rather superficially, like, well, of course, I'm defined by the school I went to, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. The very thing you call the self emerges in the context of a relationship, first with mom, then dad, and sister, brother, classroom, and grammar school, whatever. Everything about the self, I mean, obviously, the genetic and constitutional endowments uh, affect how we relate to the environment, but the actual 
dynamic mechanisms of self-evolution are in the context of back and forth complicated uh, intersubjective neurobiology between us and other skulls. Yes? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And so that creates a situation where most folks don't realize yeah. that they are created by others. I mean, yeah. imagine if a human grew up on a remote island not that's meeting right. with any other human beings. That's right. Who would you be, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I, I always say that. I said, the, you know, if, if you, know, you get lost in the woods at 2 and you come out of the woods at 15 – are you going to have an identity? And and I would argue not that you're not going to have an identity. You're not going to have consciousness in the way we think about consciousness because consciousness to me is something that develops as a result of reflection from another. So you can literally see yourself in a way of speaking outside yourself, right? It's a way of observing yourself because others have observed you. And I would argue that elephants, dolphins, you know, other highly social creatures are showing primordial evidence of this phenomenon. Yes, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And yeah. that's when you take humans back, that's when we talk about our evolutionary background, yeah. our genes, our minds, these cognitive biases, these dangerous cogn- dangerous judgment errors come from that evolutionary background. We didn't evolve for the modern environment. We right. evolved for the ancestral environment. Right. So if you took us back into the primeval forest and put us there alone, we would not have our conscience. We would just have those instincts that cause right. us to survive. That's right. You know, the, the, few, the few of us who would make it out of the forest, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, you, who- you're saying this explicitly. I've been saying it explicitly for a while, and, and, and it's lovely to hear you say it. Because usually when I say that, people go, eh, I'm not sure. I agree oh, with you're you, abs- 100%. You're, you're absolutely right. 100%. I mean, and uh, the conscience, interestingly enough, I was reading uh, recent research about the evolution of conscience mm-hmm. and one Con- really Con- interesting- wait, stop you. conscience or con- consciousness oh conscience conscience so yeah. how how yeah. the morals and ethics yeah. how yeah. you see yourself in yeah. relation to others right and of course that relates to consciousness yes so but you know, really interesting research about people you know three hundred thousand years old really really old you know human beings who had injuries and then they survived for a while after having injuries to grow into old age. Mm-hmm. And the only way, and they were crippled, the mm-hmm. only way they could have survived was by the support mm-hmm. of their clan members, mm-hmm. of their tribes. Mm-hmm. So we have that tribalism where we support other people who have no benefit to us. They just take resources. They're crippled, whatever, all of these problems, but we support them. We supported them. Our ancestors supported them. That's kind of this tribalism, this kind yeah. of belonging. So we have both consciousness and conscience. We have evidence of that through support of people who did not bring any tangible resources to the tribe through their old age. Except that by engaging in said behavior, the evolutionary advantage is it could easily happen to us. And if it mm-hmm. does happen to us, we have a resource available to us to help us survive. Right, but that's not an evolutionary. That's kind of mimetic. So it's well, not something if, that if would it be- is it is evolutionary in the, in the sense that if I hadn't reproduced yet, it keeps me alive longer to reproduce. Sure. Yeah. But the person, the person who you know is of old age, they are already incapable of reproducing. Yeah. Yeah. They are people who we support, and so it's kind of the con- That's the conscience and the consciousness aspects tie-in. So it's really interesting these dynamics, and to realize that. We are still, in very many ways, the same in our instincts, in our intuitions, in our gut reactions as the folks back then. And that's why we have to understand this. That's why we're not evolved for the modern world. And we have to address 
these cognitive biases. Talked well, about the status quo bias. It, it, talked about the confirmation bias, the, the false consensus effect. Another cognitive bias with leaders, by the way, just to get back to that, please. is called functional fixedness. Functional fixedness. It's the hammer tools, uh, hammer nail syndrome. When uh, you have a hammer, everything is a nail. Mm-hmm. So your functional fixedness is when you have a certain way of approaching an issue, certain way of approaching a problem, you will tend to ignore other approaches to the problem, even if they might be much better solutions to the problem, especially in the context of disruption. So managers who have an approach to the right way to work is working in the office. They keep that approach, even though for the bottom line of the company, as Uber, Amazon, Google, and so many others are realizing, they're screwing up for the bottom line of the company, that they are not getting the employees back, that there's the really serious issues with retention, employment, loyalty, morale. And so this functional fixedness impedes them from both making the right choices about getting back to the office and then changing, you know, when you have a hybrid slash remote workforce, which really seems like it's what most companies should be doing these days, it impedes them from making strategic adaptations of their previous in-office culture to this new hybrid and remote workforce. So that's kind of a big dynamic that's going on right now. Others? Have we gone through the list? That's six I've got. Yeah. So that's the that's the one. So you asked me six. for three to five. Yeah. I'll yeah, yeah. Six. The, the well, I, I said three to five after you'd already given me confirmation bias and false consensus effects and status quo bias. So I wonder if there are any more. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. One of the biggest ones is called the empathy gap. Yeah. The empathy gap is where people, all of us, tend to underestimate two things. We tend to underestimate the strength of our own emotions in the future. So we believe we're rational we in the moment see ourselves as rational and so on we don't think that you know in the the future we will not take the donut that's lying there on the table uh, very appealingly and we don't understand why our future self goes and eats that donut or two donuts or half a dozen donuts all of that all of these sorts of things because we underestimate the impulse of our genes our genetics our instincts our ancestors had to be very strongly triggered by sugar Mm -hmm. for them to survive. The ones who survived and thrived are the ones who are strongly triggered by sugar when they found bananas, apples, honey, whatever. And now we still have that impulse in the modern environment where we have an overabundance of sugar, of donuts, and so on. And we don't realize that in the moment our future self will be similarly triggered by sugar. So that's one dynamic of empathy gap. And the other aspect of empathy gap is we don't realize the same thing for other people, Mm. which is what the really crucial thing for leaders is. Leaders think and feel that other people are cold, emotional, rationally driven. And they feel, well, you know, they'll make a rational judgment and they'll come back to the office if I tell them to come back to the office, otherwise they'll lose their job. And when people feel not heard, not respected, not appreciated, you know, when you look at, uh, so for example, some information came out from Apple, which is similarly having conflicts about this, a public statement by its employees who said that the Apple communication to its employees saying that we know that you're so going to be so happy to come back to the office and we're all so excited to do this. And the employees said that, look, we already have many people, good people who left Apple because of this communication. And the rest of us who are still staying here, we are really feeling not heard, not appreciated, not cared for. 
And that's causing us to really be skeptical about sticking with Apple going forward. So not realizing the importance of emotions of employees by leaders and in general, when we as human beings don't realize how important emotions are in driving other people in making their decisions. That's a really fundamental cognitive bias that I think leaders need to really be aware of. There's a weird, um, I, I don't know if it's an empathy gap or just a lack of awareness. Uh, my son and I were actually talking about this morning. He and I have, not so much now at my age, but certainly him now presently, we have these sort of extraordinary memories. He and I were both given the crazy memories where Ooh. particularly it's not so much um, photographic memory, but we have explicit screen memories. Like we can like play the tape. If somebody goes, wow. you know, what happened on this day? We just we just roll the t- tape and, we can, and we can great. see what happened. But because of that, we're acutely aware of how impaired other people's perception. And, and by the way, we know the limits of that memory. Like, like we can either roll the tape or we can't, kind of thing. Like, if we can't roll the tape, we go, "Well, I kind of remember. I think that's what happened." And we'd use associative memory to try to put it back together. But there's many, many things. And by the way, the duration of that tape can go for a long time. Um, and we just play the tape back and we watch it and we go, well, "That's what happened." <laughs> and mm-hmm. but we hear other people talking about the same circumstance and it's stunning to us uh, how much they don't appreciate the limitations of memory because we because mm. we do it and we know where we got it and we know where we ain't got it and how they just fill in they just confabulate it's just <laughs> it's just stunning we were both telling stories to each other about what we've heard people say about things that we knew exactly what had happened and it's just that then the timing everything's off just full confabulation and and that that to me feels like another kind of empathy gap thing of self to self and self to other people don't appreciate how 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 weak memory actually is in most cases yeah. And there's a number of cognitive biases that relate to this. There's no specific cognitive bias that talks about memory in that sense. There are a number. Of, but what you're talking about here is so pretty sounds like the overconfidence bias. Yes. So the overconfidence yes. bias is definitely a big, big problem for leaders. Overconfidence bias and for other sorts of forks, but we're talking about leaders where people tend to be greatly, 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 way too confident about their judgments. Now, in the Savannah environment, in that ancestral caveman environment, it was really important for us to have a feeling of confidence because we had to make those snap decisions, those fight-or-flight responses, saber-toothed tiger response, jump at 100 shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger, and you survive and thrive and reproduce. You know, you miss the saber-toothed tiger, oops. So that's, (laughs) That's that's bad. Yeah. In the modern environment, we face many, many less saber. It also types. creates a negative bias too, right? We we pay more attention to negative than positive. Loss aversion. Yes. Yeah. Yep. But in this case, kind of the overconfidence comes results from that fight or flight response, where we make very quick snap judgments in the modern world, yeah. and we don't take the time to think about relating to memory. You know, can our memory be mistaken? Can there be confabulation? Can there be issues with our memory? You know, that's not something we intuitively think about at all unless we train ourselves to do so. And these are debiasing techniques. So how do you debias? How do you address these cognitive biases? You can do so, of course. We're talking about the problems now. Now, the overconfidence bias causes us to be too confident about our memories, what we remember. It causes us to be confident about decisions. And we gather way too little evidence before making decisions. And the, the information we gather tends to be twisted. So... 
combining with a confirmation bias and overconfidence bias is a really bad combination. So what leaders often do when they're trying to decide what to do about going back to the office is they, they see the CEO talks to the other C-suite, the COO, the chief HR officer, the, the chief technology officer, all these sorts of folks. And then they talk to their senior VPs and then that's it. And yeah. these are all people with the same personalities, you know, 20, 30 years, 40 years of success in in-office activities, through yeah. in-office activities. And they all tend to want to go back to the office. And so they're like, yes, let's go back to the office, <laughs> despite the fact that it's going to be really bad for the company for them to go back to the office. So that's kind of a tendency when you have the overconfidence bias about both information gathering and decision making that leads to really serious issues, not simply memory, but in going forward as well. I, I have a, a something you said made me uh, chill a little bit. I'll bring it up in a second, but I just want to bring back the memory issue. Uh, I've got a friend, uh, Bobby Chacon. Has, he ever, has Bobby ever been on this podcast? Bobby Chacon? No. He's an FBI agent, and he um, does uh, expert witness training. Uh, mm. and, in, when, and when people come to the class uh, – not expert witness, I beg your pardon uh, – uh, uh, what's it called when somebody sees something happen? Uh, eyewitness. Eyewitness. Eyewitness training. Is eye, training on eyewitnesses about eyewitnesses. And people are coming to this class to learn about eyewitnesses. And as the class is heating up, they're getting started. He has a couple have a fight over on the right side of the room. And the lower left, some masked, couple of masked people, not masked, the people come in in dark outfits and kidnap somebody. Mm-hmm. And the, the entire room of 50 people are asked to report what happened. And less than 5% of people can report what happened. They can't get the race the individual's right. They can't get the sex right. They can't get anything right in an eyewitness account of what just happened, mind you. And memory yeah. changes over time, right? Finding finding a podcast with experts like that on eyewitnesses, it's terrifying to think that like murder trials and stuff hinge on eyewitness I, I accounts. Know. Know. And it's like, look, I mean – I don't know what we're supposed to do, but the numbers surrounding when people, when experts explain to you what eyewitnesses will wrongly report, yeah. it's terrifying. Well, this is a, a new line of business for Gleb Sabursky. He can just go to <laughs> expert witness on this stuff, and I'm oh, sure yeah. I, he can. Eyewitnesses are definitely yeah, notoriously I'm, unreliable. I'm sure he could build it from first things. principles and build the data up and be very, very powerful witness in in a case like that. But <laughs> but um, the thing you said that made me chill was you talked about tribalism causing the cognitive and biases and you said it's growing and yeah. you, you said you used that word and i went oh please no I, it certainly has grown is it still growing is aren't we sort of turning direction a little bit on this aren't people raising their awareness of the degree to which they're allowing tribalism to adversely affect their lives or is it still growing please no please no. i have not observed <laughs> it decreasing Ugh. it's not uh, the in order to decrease it, let me be clear. Yeah. In order to decrease it, it's not enough for people to be aware. I mean, we have a lot of evidence saying, showing that just awareness of cognitive bias doesn't cause people to address that cognitive well, bias. Well, I, but I enough. said it very carefully. Awareness of the impact, the negative impact on I, their I life. I understand. Yeah, so let, yeah. let, me, let, yeah. let, let me continue. Yeah. So awareness of cognitive biases doesn't decrease cognitive yeah. biases. Why is that? Because people tend to believe that they are not the ones who are cognitive biased. <laughs> they tend to believe that other people not tend are the to. ones. Not tend yep. to. We all do that. So everyone is exactly. – me, you and me included, Gary included, sure. everyone listening, we all manifest these cognitive biases at one time or another, period. Exactly. And yeah. so here, when people are thinking, well, tribalism is bad, they are tribal. I am good. I'm not yeah. tribal. Yeah. So the, I don't think tribalism is particularly decreasing because <laughs> you have to be aware of your own tribalism and accept that within yourself Mm. 
And that's pretty painful. That's mm. emotionally difficult for people to do. So for people to do this emotionally difficult thing is not an easy thing from in a perspective of individual responsibility. The Proud Truth Pledge, which you signed, and I signed, and thank you for signing it, is one way of doing so, that protruthpledge.org, which is a commitment to truthfulness and addressing tribalism within your own community of people who support your values and ideas and saying, hey, if they're lying, that's a bad thing. You need to correct them as well as correcting the other side. So the pro-truth pledge is pro-truthpledge.org, which I hope everyone signs. So I'm, uh, that's a co- very small kind of grassroots yeah. effort. I, so I, this I, is a couple of things I want to say about that really quick before I forget, which is that, is that for me, so so as a scientist, it's sort of ground into us to get used to being wrong and have humility mm-hmm. and to change our, our assumptions and our biases and things. We're, we're trained that way, right? Yeah. And even we are still prone to this stuff. But, but I don't find it painful. I find being wrong painful, and I understand that that's sort of underpinning some of this stuff. Um, I lost my train of thought. This is the one thing I have a little more of with, with uh, COVID. Uh, Gone. I'll, it'll come back to me in a second. So, but but uh, I've had I, th- that's not something unusual, by the way, just by virtue of aging to have some of this stuff happen. It just happens a little more frequently since COVID. So, anyway, I, I the, the all right the painfulness of uh, of being wrong, of having cognitive mm-hmm. bias, of being trained into it. Yes. Uh, so you, go ahead. Yes. So that's something. If you are trying to address that, that's the first step. Yeah. You, you know, because the tendency again is to think that other people are the ones with cognitive biases. And that's not an easy thing to do. That's something you really have to work on within yourself. The large majority of people don't work on tribalism. They don't do that. They tend to point out tribalism on the other side. That's kind of how awareness works. Let, let me Before I forget it that. again, I'm going to interrupt you just to make sure I push it out there. Sure. What I was thinking was, gosh, for me, and because of the way I'm trained, the way I get to the truth is through a dialectic talking to people and, ch- and testing my hypotheses and listening to other people's point of view. And the dialectic has been suppressed. Like I'm, I've been kicked off YouTube for trying to talk to my peers who have different opinions than me, opinions I don't agree with. But just because I brought them on and certain words came out of their mouth, I was deplatformed from YouTube. Oh, man. And so – but but the, but we neither here nor there. The point is though that how can we get to the truth without the dialectic? The yeah. dialecticals it's in science and in medicine, it's critically important, and these mm-hmm. platforms are suppressing it wildly. It's really something. Oh, that's the, that's the filter bubble because the platforms know that dialectic causes people often to feel bad because, you know, to say they want to save space. They don't want to hear things that they feel is offensive. And again, this is on both sides. And then they, you know. They, they click dislike mm-hmm. on things that they don't like. Mm-hmm. And that's beneficial for platforms to remove those sorts of things and keep people in their platform bubble, in their filter bubble. Because if they're kept in their filter bubble, they stay in the platform for longer and they watch more ads. Jeez. Whereas if they see something that causes them to be upset, they click off the platform. Gross. That is a fundamental problem of the platforms. So I'm talking about the media landscape changing. You know, it doesn't happen on network TV. When Before social media, when people used to get their news from network TV or from reading the local newspaper, you know, they can read news that makes them happy or makes them sad, but yeah. they're not going to, you know, stop reading the news if right. they have a subscription. Right. So they, they have to consume it. Whereas in the platform, if they see something they dislike, they will stop engaging with the platform, and the platform doesn't like that because they see less ads. So that's I, a problem. I, I, in terms of uh, uh, cognitive emotions, I, I have discussed five times a day, and that's that's 
I'm not used to having disgust. It's so weird to me. I, this, this story, for instance, it disgusts me. It's disgusting yeah. that, that people, the dialectic is suppressed because these guys have a business model that, you know, whatever. I'm just like, ugh, gross. But uh, yeah. I, we're running low on time. I have two things I want to get to, so let's just throw them out there and you can deal as you please. One was, again, correcting the biases. We haven't really gotten to that yet. I'm assuming the book, Return to the Office, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, will give us the solutions, yes? That's right. Okay. Uh, as relevant, and, of course, will return to the office, the workforce, the workplace of the future. That's the focus of that book. Yep. And I'm going like to ask you to, I'm gonna ask you to sketch some of those solutions. But the other thing I want to get to, as I've noticed also, is the phenomenon of trust is something that has sort of come to the fore for me. In mm-hmm. terms of talking to people, and I'll be making a case, and I'll say, you know, the government has this. They got. I don't care. I can't trust the government. Anything they say, mm-hmm. oh, ugh, can't trust it. And I'm like, wow, that's a problem. <laughs> and yeah. what do you trust? And how do you build trust? And how do we help people? You know, trust information versus disinformation. It's really a hard issue. But first, I'll have you give us a little sketch on how to solve the biases in the workplace, and then you give me a little primer on trust. Okay. Sure. So yeah. the, solving the cognitive biases in the workplace involves the leaders really stepping back from what they want mm-hmm. from the from de-anchoring. So that's kind of a really important strategy, de-anchoring yourself from those cognitive biases and from what you're used to. Dealing with status quo bias and related to cognitive biases has to do with de-anchoring yourself. Meaning what? What does that mean? Your, How do you do that? De-anchoring yourself means freeing yourself from your assumptions about what the right ways to work are about what's comfortable from you and accepting that the future is disrupted. You know, the pandemic is a fundamental disruption, just like the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis was a fundamental disruption that changed the way things are. Mm. And the pandemic is a fundamental disruption. Nothing will ever be the same. We'll never turn back the clock to January 2020, no matter how many leaders, no matter how much leaders want to turn back the clock to January 2020. And that means letting go of your past assumptions about how work should be organized, how people should engage with each other, and saying that, okay, you know, what is actually necessary, going back to first principles, as we talked about, and looking at, okay, what is necessary for the company to do its job in the most cost-effective way, in a way that retains employees, builds morale, and ensures that we have the products that we need. And as we can see from the results of Amazon, Uber, and Google, and many other companies, it's not forcing everyone back to the office five days a week, Monday through Friday. Mm. That is a problematic perspective. So what research suggests is necessary is, again, freeing yourself from those assumptions. Then the next step is looking at what the employees are actually saying and taking it seriously and appreciating their emotions. So addressing this empathy gap addressing the false consensus effect, saying that, okay, if they're saying that they really wanted to work remotely, treat it seriously and assume that many will leave if you will not give them remote work or significant hybrid work. And then make decisions about what the company looks like. Now, you can choose to not allow people in your remote work, but you need to accept that 20 30% will leave, and that's going to be a pretty big hit. So you might want to allow some people who can successfully work remotely. And we know that remote workers have higher productivity overall than in-office workers. That's been shown by extensive research. It's hard to believe. So allow some folks to work remotely. It's hard to believe that. I imagine it's hard for them to accept it. It, I yeah. mean, the companies are showing that you know, Microsoft and Slack have really internal research yeah. Yeah. showing that they are quite a bit more productive yeah. uh, through Slack, through Microsoft Teams, through all of these formats, as well as for surveys. 
because, I mean, and it makes logical sense. If you don't have to go on a commute, by the way, the commute is the number one reason why people don't want to go back to the office. Being stuck in traffic an hour and uh, an hour on the way back means two unproductive, unpaid hours. When they don't have that, those two hours, they work much more and much more productively, more effectively, more productively, and just longer hours. On average, people work who are work remote workers work 20 more hours per month. Hmm. So quite a bit more time because they don't have to take it up with the commute and other inconveniences. So these folks are on their tasks, especially the tasks they have to do individually, not in teams, are much more productive. On average, 10 to 14%. And that includes both collaborative and individual tasks. Now, if they so if folks are more productive, your team members certain team members in your company are more productive at home and they really want to work at home, why not just leave them to work at home if they produce everything that you need? Right. Now, some people might, obviously there's some essential employees, that's different. Some people will definitely want to be back in the office. There are definitely lots of people. The majority want a hybrid workforce, hmm. not of every company, but the majority of all the population, over 50% and pretty much all surveys, want to come to the office one to two days a week, maybe three at most, usually one to two days. And they want that collaboration because collaborative tasks, when you look at the research, most collaborative tasks for most people are better done in the office. So you want to assume that what the research shows is going to be what's best for your company, not your intuitions, not your assumptions, not your preferences. The research is what you need to go orient toward. And that's hard for people to accept. That's hard for employees to accept. So we're talking about trust uh, to kind of segue a little bit into yes, that, make good. sure that we don't run out of time. Well done. People don't trust external research. They trust their own perspectives. They trust mm. their intuitions. Mm. So when you hear someone say, I don't trust the government, or I don't trust big business, or I don't trust nonprofits, or I don't trust the church, or something like that, it's not because they don't externally trust. It's because it opposes their intuitions. Mm. It opposes their assumptions. It opposes their feelings, their gut intuitions. And people fundamentally and very, very sadly trust their feelings over reality. Now, what is the cause of you know, mental health and all of these problems, depression, anxiety? It's feeling sad when there's not necessarily anything to be sad about. Feeling anxious when there's not necessarily any f- external threats. And the similar things apply to people who are technically mentally healthy, but they fundamentally have the same sort of mistakes about reality. They feel a certain course of action is right. They feel certain information is correct. And despite all the external evidence showing that that course of action is very wrong and that, and that information is very wrong that you have internally, they still pursue that. So it has to do with your feelings and your intuitions, which people need to learn to not trust. That's why one of my books is called Never Go With Your Gut. I, I was going to say, this, this takes it all the way back to where you started your journey in terms of uh, educating people about the, the risks of cognitive biases. This, this is back to the core principle again. Yep, exactly. So never go with your gut. How pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. You should never simply trust your gut. Your gut will sometimes be right, will sometimes be wrong, but you always need to check with your head on any decisions that you don't want to screw up because your feelings of comfort about a certain course of action might be very, very mistaken, just like the leaders of Uber and Amazon 
and Google lost many, many millions of dollars, top employees, and huge hits to morale so, because so, of their mistaken assumptions. So the gut is essentially just another data point. It can be accurate or inaccurate. It can be you know useful or not useful. It's just something to check in on, but not to rely upon, I'd say. Is that about right? You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And the problem is that the research shows that people tend to rely on their gut A lot. in the most yeah. important decisions. Yeah, especially in The most days. important decisions, people trust their gut over anything else. When this is a situation when you should least trust your gut because you're most likely to be emotional and biased, least likely to look at information objectively. So that's the big, big problem. Glad we got to wrap right there. Thank you so much as always. I no doubt we'll see you again sometime soon when the next book comes out, Absolutely. which uh, you're, you're a machine in terms of turning these things out. It's Thank you. At dr underscore gleb underscore Tsiburski on Instagram, Twitter, gleb underscore Tsiburski. Website, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. And uh, such a pleasure, my friend, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course, always. And we'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free.